0: Okay, (laughs) welcome back uh, to week four of our class, Restless Pilgrims. It's good to see you all here. Um, If this is your first time joining us, my name is Chad, and I'm your host for the next several weeks. Uh, We're looking at the premise of if life is a journey, what does that mean for the Christian? And so we've begun each class by watching a selected scene from the movie The Way, and that's how we're going to begin again our class this evening. (laughs) <laughs> I think Joost is my, my favorite character in the film. He's, uh, if you haven't seen the film, Joost is one of four traveling companions that walk the Camino Santiago with Martin Sheen's character, Tom. And, and Joost is a gentleman from Amsterdam who is on the Camino, uh, really is sort of an exercise routine. And so he he reflects some of that, some of that need to be on the journey there. And um The pilgrims in this story, in the way, have a discussion uh, that's related to this very lighthearted comment about what it means to be a true pilgrim. We mentioned this concept the first week of the class, and in this discussion that they have as they're camping out one evening, they say, you know, uh, a true pilgrim is someone who fills in the blank, and they talk about how a true pilgrim is someone who walks this journey without any sort of, of the, any sort of modern conveniences, that they're just on the journey. And someone who adds anything additionally to that isn't really a true pilgrim. And this is in part I think why Yost is so upset right now because he's been asked to walk. This is what you do when you in experience the Camino Santiago is that you walk. and that anything other than that, rollerblading, biking, uh, almost seems like you're cheating. Uh, In this class, as I said, we're talking about this concept, this reality of what is life like if we're living on journey? What might we expect as Christians as we're walking this path? And so we've been doing three things in the class. The first is we've been uh, exploring and looking at a rediscovery of our roots as Christians. So looking at characters from scripture, characters from history that can help inform and give insight into what's happening in our own lives. We've been looking at life as a journey, and so if you're to make a journey, let's say, to hike Camelback Mountain, hike the Grand Canyon, you know that there are certain aspects to that terrain, and you can expect certain things along the way. That, that reality that we experience in life is true in our spiritual lives as well. So those different aspects of terrain that uh, saints like Abraham, like Moses, like Esther, like C.S. Lewis, have encountered those similar traits, those similar aspects of their own terrain, if you will, is something that uh, we can expect as well. And so we've been talking about uh, some of those different types of terrain. And third, we, thirdly, we're exploring the reality that we're ultimately headed towards an end destination. And that's significant in understanding the direction and course of our lives. Like the pilgrims who walked the Camino Santiago, they're headed towards... Uh, A great city. They're headed towards a beautiful, enchanting, medieval city. This is the ultimate uh, result and destination of their journey, and we have our own destination. That has implications for our own lives. The first week, we talked about uh, starting the journey every day, that we are called out, like Abraham was called, not geographically to leave his home, but more importantly, he was called spiritually to leave a mindset that essentially said this, life is you're born, you live, and you die, and that Worldview, that mentality is actually something that is very similar to the world that we live in in the West, a secular space that says this is basically all that there is, and that people live life with that mentality, and God is calling us out of that mentality every day. We are, in a sense, making the journey, taking those steps of faith every day. The second week, we looked at the story of the Exodus and how in the Exodus, God was calling a group of people out of their home. He was liberating them out of enslavement, calling them into the wilderness, and that that process of liberation is not something that's very easy. It's difficult, and God calls his people into the wilderness to experience discomfort, challenges. They're confronted with themselves. That reality is something that mirrors our own realities. The drama of the exodus is a pattern that plays itself out in our own lives, that God is God is desiring freedom for each of us, and so the events in our lives, often that we look at as discomforts, as annoyances, as challenges, and we may simply look at it as just those, God is actually using all of that to bring about ongoing freedom and liberation in our lives. Last week, we looked at uh, this truth that if it's true that we're on the journey, and the journey can be long and difficult and rugged, how do we keep our hearts along the way? We explored the Psalms and looking at the life of David and how David had a proper understanding of two crucial components that help create and foster in us a vitality of heart and faith. And that was a proper understanding of home and a proper understanding of beauty. And that if we don't learn to and cultivate an ongoing discipline of the heart where we set our affections on the beauty of God and we find an ongoing rest with God, that we're going to get worn thin, burnt out, become cynical and frustrated. It's a necessity. Today we're going to talk about uh, a feature of the way that will probably hit home somewhere in each of your lives at some aspect of your life. And that this element of the journey is something that all Christians experience, and I would make the case at at any time in their life. Today we're going to talk about Probably the most practical, down-to-earth, this meets you right where you're at, right where you're sitting, because some element of this feature touches your life and your reality today. And this feature of the way, in fact, these two features of the way, uh, is really what makes up so much of traveling the way you know, it's interesting, Tom and his friends are called to walk the journey. They're, they're made to walk the journey. And that, and it's, it's really pretty simple. I mean, all that they're really tasked to do is just get up in the morning and walk and go to the next place. That truth is what we're going to talk about today. Now, some of what I might say this evening might initially feel somewhat uninspired, uh, discouraging, even frustrating. But my hope is, by the end of the evening that you see the beauty of what God is up to in these two crucial aspects of the terrain that we're going to travel with. So I'd like to begin by starting with this question. How do you define greatness? What does greatness look like to you? Take a moment and just kind of, just kind of process that, meditate on that question for a moment. How do you define Greatness. Our world and our culture have a number of responses to the answer of this question, and it can look and come in all kinds of forms, shapes, and sizes. For some, greatness is an accumulation of, wa- of wealth. For others, it's achievement. For others, it's, it's a devotion to a community, to a religious tradition, to a family, for some, it's being able to live life on their own terms. Uh, for others, it's being involved in a great cause. And we're surrounded by a myriad of responses to this crucial crucial question of, the funda- of a fundamental dimension of what it means to be a human being. We've talked about some of those fundamental dimensions of what it means to be a human being, that freedom is a crucial aspect of that, that longing and desire is a crucial aspect of that, that the need to find home and make a home and find a dwelling place. Greatness is another one of these things that is a a core foundational reality of what it means to be a human being. And like those other elements, people cannot help themselves but pursue and search for and look for greatness. It's just part of the wiring and makeup of being a human being. What's interesting, though, is that God's definition of greatness and what greatness looks like is oftentimes very much different than a lot of the responses that we get in culture, in the world, uh, and even the marketplace. And the other element in understanding greatness is this, is greatness is always inextricably tied to an understanding of authority and power. So that thematic reality is what we're going to talk about tonight and what God is up to in committing himself to making his saints great. Because God is in the process of liberating his saints, helping his saints find ultimate home, ultimate beauty, and he's also in the process of making his saints great. So the big idea tonight is this, is that God is going to use two crucial features on the way along the journey to help and accomplish that end. The first is walking through the desert, and the second is walking through the valley. Now when I ask you this question and I ask you to think about greatness, um, for whatever reason that might seem like somewhat of a distant concept of reality for you this evening. When you think about being a person of greatness and that you're called to greatness, your life may or may not feel like it embodies that quality. Do you struggle to feel like your life has any kind of significance or real kind of meaning? Do you feel like your life is just ordinary and it's full of details and getting the kids to school and, and paying your bills and just trying to show up to work on time and, and do a good job and not go crazy with your family and, and be a committed Christian the best you can. But the idea of greatness is something that, yeah, maybe that's that's reserved for people like Joan of Arc, Mother Teresa, someone who's invited us to the Grammys, but I'm just, I'm just a regular person and my life is full of just a lot of mundane details. Do you feel perhaps like, You're maybe even unseen, unapplauded, unappreciated, that there are some elements, maybe even a lot of elements of your life that just don't occupy a lot of what we may call applause or acclaim, or that there are trophies being made after you and books are being written about you because of what you're doing in your day-to-day life. If you're anywhere in that space this evening, you're in great company because this message is for you. This message is really for all of us. Let me start with this quote. How does God make his saints great? And how does God define what greatness is? Alicia Britt Coley in her book Anonymous says this. This is a crucial way that we begin to understand what God's up to in this process. Unapplauded, but not unproductive, hidden years are the surprising birthplace of true spiritual greatness. Unapplauded, but not unproductive, Hidden years are the surprising birthplace of spiritual greatness. I want to start us off with three different stories. Three stories that really uh, are remarkably similar in their thematic tone and their experiences. Uh, The first is what we're probably very familiar with in the story of Moses. Moses was, as you know, a prince of Egypt who was involved in the murder of a fellow Egyptian after learning that He was a Hebrew, and his fellow Hebrews had been enslaved uh, by the man that he called Father. And in struggling greatly with this, Moses, after this event, leaves his home, leaves Egypt, and heads to the wilderness. And he ends up in Midian for 40 years. For 40 years, Moses works as a shepherd. He works for his father-in-law. He doesn't even have his own business. He's in the scorching sun, in the heat. Imagine working in Yuma for 40 years without any air conditioning. This was the existence that Moses lived and occupied in, day in, day out, working and tending sheep. My grandfather was a shepherd. And sometimes we can have this sort of precious moments, idyllic look at being a shepherd because you get to hold the cute little lamb in your arms. And aren't they wonderful? My grandfather would tell you it was the hardest dang job he ever had because sheep are stupid, sheep are stubborn. And uh, it's a very difficult life in a lot of respects. And this is what Moses lived in for 40 years after being a pampered son of Pharaoh, Prince of Egypt. A second story finds us with the character and the figure Corey ten Boom. Some of you may be very familiar with Corey's story. Corey is a personal hero of mine. She lived before, during, and after World War II. She was uh, the youngest daughter of a watch repairman in uh, Amsterdam. And and Corey uh, lived in a little home. Her father was really well respected in this community. He was loved. He was sort of a pillar of the community. Every morning began with Bible study. And for a time, Corey had thought and hoped that she would marry. There was a man that she was in love with, but that relationship never came to fruition. And so Corey spent most of her life in her father's home with her older sister, Betsy, and she took up the trade of her father. She began to learn how to do watch repairs and whatnot. Corey lived a what, mo- what many might consider a very quiet, simple life of routine, of predictability. Though it was quiet and simple, there was a lot of great joy that Corey had in her life, but it was nothing that anyone perhaps would write anything on the front page of any kind of newspaper. The, so the third story I'd like to share with you is of Dwight D. Eisenhower. U.S. president who, as a young man, wanted, to, uh, wanted to, to one day be in the military, and he was. Uh, he, he went to West Point, and during these years, uh, World War II was happening in Europe. And so he wanted to go off and fight like his other fellow soldiers, like his friend, George Patton. But he wasn't sent off to the front to fight in World War I. In fact, in fact Eisenhower was asked to stay back and look after the troops. And this was sort of demeaning, not being able to fight. Um, that generation and, and following, being able to fight in war was something that was, was crucial. My own grandfather uh, wasn't able to fight in World War II. He had an accident where it, it permanently disfigured his hand, and he, he couldn't go and fight with the rest of his company. An interesting aside is that every member of his company ended up dying in World War II. So if he had gone and had, had, had gone to fight, I wouldn't be here, um, Dwight D. Eisenhower, after after this during this this phase in his life, uh, in in trying to kind of keep up morale with the troops because there weren't a lot of supplies at West Point, he had to go around to neighboring towns and ask people, you know, can can you help us out? We don't really have much. The morale of troops was really low. After that, he was he was shipped uh, he was shipped to uh, South America where he lived in su- substandard housing. His wife couldn't stand it. After that, he did a stint working with, uh, I believe, the Firestone uh, Tire Company. And at that time, there was no interstate system. And what they were doing was chartering how to get across the U.S. And it, you could imagine it would take maybe, you know, travel maybe like eight miles a day or something. It was a tedious, excruciatingly boring journey. After that, Eisenhower was sent to France by the Army. And he basically had a glorified job of being a, a tour guide. He had to you know show people around France, and it, again, it was sort of a demeaning job and and uh, it was interesting though Eisenhower got to know France better than anybody because he had to act as a tour guide after that, he was shipped over to uh, to the, the the Pacific region and he essentially was a glorified assistant to a general and he would help out at poker games where he would basically bring drinks to the table. What was interesting though is during this time Eisenhower. Got to see the different expressions of the different generals that were gathered around, he started to understand personalities and how egos work with men. And it was a really interesting time for him to look at and observe. But Eisenhower struggled with feelings of futility and failure. In fact, up until his 50s, he felt like his life was a complete failure. One sort of, you know, seemingly random experience after the other. And you can imagine what what someone like a Moses must have felt. I mean, think about it. 40 years and all that you're doing is watching sheep day in, day out, day in, day out. And what about Corey ten Boom? Did she feel like her life was, was wasted, was wasting away, that all that she was doing on the surface was living a quiet, simple life, being a, a, a repair person for, for clocks, uh, it's a reality that begins to, to hit us home individually because I wonder if we struggle with the same thing. Is there really anything significant about my life? Is my life perhaps just wasting away in certain areas, whether that's career, ministry opportunities, relationally? And we start to perhaps begin the struggle that can, that can take place and begin the lie that happens in these experiences of life when we're when we're, we're unapplauded, we're unappreciated that either God doesn't care, he's not involved, or I've screwed up somehow, or some weird combination of both. Either God is distant or removed, or I've maybe made some decisions along the way that I shouldn't have, but certainly I shouldn't be in South America in substandard housing. Certainly I shouldn't be in the shadow of Sinai tending sheep. Certainly I shouldn't be, uh, doing the same thing day in day out as a as a watch pair, as a watch uh, repair person, but these are the realities and the stories that these characters found themselves in. So, we're going to talk about the first crucial feature of traveling along the way that God utilizes to develop greatness in His saints, and that is walking through the desert. Walking through the desert. I think I have another slide after this. Yes. Okay. Um, now, when you, look at, when you look at the story of Scripture, uh, what's really interesting to think about, is, as one commentator points out, is this, is that the whole of biblical history has been interpreted as having a desert or wilderness motif. And let me put it another way to kind of, to kind of ground that statement. As a screenwriter, we understand story structure basically as this, beginning, middle, and end, right? That's how, that's how we tell stories. Screenwriters use Act One, Act two and Act three. So Act One is your introduction, your setup. Act two is the heart of the story, what we call conflict. Act three is your resolution. Well, if you look at this as the ultimate story, as the meta-narrative that guides our lives, the Act one of Scripture would essentially be Genesis 1 to three, right? That's the setup for the story. The majority of the story and any story takes place in Act two, and the resolution of our story happens in what? Like revelation. So most of the story, as this commentator is pointing out, is grounded in a desert or wilderness motif. It looks like this. Sarah waits 25 years to have Isaac. Joseph waited over 20 years before he saw his family again. Esther waited 24 years before she stood in the gap for her people. Paul waited more than 10 years before he was officially commissioned by the church to ministry. And Moses waited 40 years before God spoke to him through the burning bush. Act 2, the heart of the story, grounded in a desert. Screenwriters call this conflict that the majority of scripture is grounded in this reality. If that's true for the meta narrative, and that's this is a pattern that we see happening with the lives of saints, why would that not be the case for us? And if that's true, what are some of the features of the desert and what is God doing in very counterintuitive ways? Let's begin to define what a desert is, spiritually speaking. Now, we have the great fortune of living in a desert, and there's a, unique, there's a unique beauty to the desert. Um, I know for a time I, I've struggled with that, but as I've lived in Phoenix uh, more and more years, I've come to see that there really is a, a mystic, uh, distinct beauty to living here uh, in a desert. But I think most people would associate deserts with being this, a seemingly empty, barren, forgotten place. Uh, the Hebrew word, though, for the word desert is midbar, and it's, it's from the word debar, meaning to speak. That's kind of interesting, to speak. Uh, Chuck Colson, in his book on Moses, talks about this and why this Hebrew word to, to speak would be, why this word desert would be called to speak, and what are some of the implications for that. He says this, Let me draw from that root term and suggest that the desert is the place where God speaks, where he communicates some of his most important messages to us. Next slide. Now, now, what might that, now what might that desert look like for you? Well, for Moses, it was this. It was being in the, in, in the wilderness of Sinai, tending to the sheep. It could be something like transitions, prolonged waiting, new additions to the family, preparatory education, relocation, retirement, Unexplainable loss, extended illnesses, irresolvable conflict, and all else that tends to hide us—any any aspect of your life that somehow feels delayed, unnoticed, unapplauded, unappreciated—these are these are desert experiences. These are desert seasons. Next slide. Um, so, what is God up to? Next slide. Let's look at the features of the desert. Uh, Alicia Britt Coley says this, when he calls a soul simultaneously to greatness and obscurity, the fruit, if we wait for it, can change the world. So here are some of the features of the desert. The first is this. Next slide. It is uncelebrated. There are seasons when we feel underestimated, underappreciated, or even invisible. In other words, no one is clapping. Moses working as a shepherd. So have you ever found yourself in an experience whether, let's say that you were on a particular career path and for whatever reason, things haven't quite gone according to plan. I think we all can say, if we're honest, each of us has a sort of life script. This is how I, I hope and think my life should play itself out. By this age, I'm going to get married. By this age, I'm going to have, uh, you know, these things accomplished in my career. I hope to have a, uh, be a homeowner by 25, by 35, by 45, whatever it is, I want this much in my bank account. And somewhere along the line, as Kathy Keller says, something happens where our life script is like this and what's happening in the events of our lives seem to go like this. That is a crucial feature, a definitive feature of being in the desert. The second element, it's isolating. Isolation is always part of the wilderness experience. And the instant feeling you get is, God's gone, right? It's that experience where you're like, wait a minute. So I went to the best school in the world, and now I'm working a job where, you know, 17 year olds, 15 year olds, you know, are working. I'm working alongside. Or I was in this marriage that didn't work out, or I didn't get married, or I was hoping for this particular ministry opportunity, but it hasn't quite panned itself out. And you find yourself kind of in a corner in some area of your life going, what happened? I mean, I I have these gifts, I have these longings, I have these burdens, and something seems to be off course. Is God just a really poor manager of my life? I mean, I was expecting something to happen, and it doesn't. Chuck Colson goes on to say this, where is he? Speaking of God, he's left me in this place. You say to yourself, I'm going to lose my gifts. I'm going to use my, I'm going to lose my usefulness. I'm forgotten. God's left me behind time is running out, opportunities are passing me by, I'll never get out of this place. Does that hit home for anybody? It's it's kind of like in the movie, the Pixar film Cars, where Lightning McQueen is at the top of his game. I know this is kind of a silly example, but Lightning McQueen is at the top of his game, and his life path literally gets diverted, and he experiences an off-ramp, and he spends a good deal of time in Radiator Springs. How could the guy that was this much of a champion be in Radiator Springs and we have those off-ramp experiences of life where we go, you know what, I've tried everything I can think of and nothing seems to be changing. Next slide. It's mundane. It's routine. Predictable. Day in and day out. The same thing. Day in and day out. And we hear of our friend who has this amazing experience, this coworker that gets promoted, this family member that finally gets the relationship they long for and we're like, well, what about me? What about all I'm doing? Get up, same thing, day in, day out, tending sheep for 40 years, repairing watches for 30 years, serving generals a Jack and Coke. When I went to West Point, this is ridiculous. It's uncomfortable. Think about it. The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, Moses, 40 years in the wilderness. Unless we forget our Lord and Savior, who spent the majority of his life, 30 years of his life, most of that living in relative obscurity and being unapplauded, that these were the crucial, informative, and foundational years that would become necessary for his ministry. Okay. Why is this? What's happening here? Is God a bad manager of our lives? Can we trust him? Do we need to get ourselves back on track? Have we missed the boat? Has God missed the boat? What might he be up to in all of this? I'd like to start with a very interesting illustration uh, that in her book, which I highly recommend, um, uh, Anonymous, Alicia Britt Coley talks about in... In doing renovation work of her home, she really liked for people to come over and see what had happened. You know, the new paint, the new furniture. But she said, I would never take anybody into the crawl space, right? No one would ever go and see, like, the foundation because it's, it's sort of grimy under there. And besi- who wants to see that? Yet she said, this is the most important aspect of the house. This is the foundation. This is what supported the house. Really, if you want to see what makes the house the house, this is what makes the house the house. The same is true with what God is up to in these desert seasons of our lives. Let me ask you this question. Why is it that we see so often figures in the media who experience all kinds of failures and and falls from grace, whether it's someone in politics, in athletics, in ministry, in the professional world? Why Why does this pattern seem to happen over and over and over Well, obviously we can give the reason for uh, perhaps many of them don't know the Lord, but when we look at those those that do know the Lord, what's taking place and, and what's happening there? Well, I'd like to propose this, is that God understands our need for and built within us the pursuit of becoming great, and he understands what true greatness is, and that greatness is inexorably tied to an understanding of power. You will somehow pursue this and that these seasons of great, these seasons of desert, what God is up to is creating in each of us a durable soul, a lasting soul. He's developing us within within us the character to have the kind of power that when we receive that power, when it's bestowed upon us, we know how to wield and use that well. In the beginning of in the beginning of our story, God wants to endow and bestow man and woman with the ability to rule that. Men and women were ultimately made to be stewards of creation. We were made to be kings and queens of the earth. God wanted to bestow power on men and women. The problem is after the fall when mankind became corrupted is that man has a tragic and unfortunate relationship with power. Think of most of the situations in life, whether it's in your working life, in familial life, or just in what you see out in the world. Do most people handle power well? Do most people steward that power very well? The answer is tragically no. So what does God have to do? What has to happen in his saints? God needs to create and orchestrate elongated seasons that can be full of frustration, that can be full of difficulty, that can be mundane, day in, day out. So what happens in that saint, that person, is they start to see things like this. You know... I'm really not in control of my life like I thought I was. You know, I'm really, I'm really not as great as I thought I was. I mean, God is God, and I'm a man, or I'm a woman, and that's that. We start to begin to see reality for what it is. If it's true that being a Christian is the fullest expression of what it means to be human, what God is doing in his grace in these desert seasons is letting us practice what it means to be human. That he's giving us the grace of, you know what? All I'm asking you to do in this season of your life is to live your life in a way that honors me. And we struggle with feeling, you know, I'm just not, I'm not living that revolutionary, exciting, adventurous Christian life. And God may be calling you to that, but chances are God is probably calling us in these seasons to be faithful, to stay put, and to learn more and more what it means to be faithful, to practice the art of being a human being. You know, if, if all that we have to do is, and it's if all that we have to do is live our lives in a godly way, we're learning how to become human, the day in, day out practice. I mean, if you want to be, we were talking about just, just at dinner, um, someone, uh, uh, I, I can't remember your, your daughter's name, Jolie is, pra- or your son's name, I'm sorry. Jacob is learning to play the saxophone. And we know in any kind of, per, or I'm sorry, the trumpet. He played the saxophone and now he's playing the trumpet. That's right, very talented kid, right? When we, when we learn to play something like an instrument, what do we do? We practice it over and over and over and over. I think that's what God is having us do in these seasons, is practice what it means to be human. We have a chance, a kind of a Groundhog Day repetition, day in and day out, to learn what it means to be kind, to learn what it means to be loving, to practice this. Why is this so? Because ultimately, God does want to give us power. He wants to bestow on us power. For those of you that have experienced a kind of power, whether it's leading a ministry, leading a company, leading a family, uh, leading some kind of endeavor, you can attest to this reality that that power is a sobering thing. Uh, Augustine, when he was asked to be made, the bishop of Hippo cried. Because he understood the weight and the gravity of what was being placed on him. God understands this reality well. And it's something that we often, like in the story of the Exodus, we look at these experiences, I think, often as just, just random. This doesn't mean anything. If I can just get on to you know, the real adventure, the real excitement. And God, I think, is saying, this is actually the most critical time in your life. This is the most critical time in your life. If you don't pay attention to what's happening in your character, are you really different than Bernie Madoff? Are you really different than Tiger Woods? You don't think that if that kind of temptation was put before you, you would fall to that? And if we don't don't cultivate in these seasons, we will unfortunately do what so many people do, is we will abuse power, we will abuse the greatness that's given to us, we will hurt ourselves, and we will hurt other people in the process. What are some of the challenges that we face in this reality, right? Because this is very countercultural. The rest of the world doesn't think like this. Our culture certainly doesn't think like this. It's all about the acquisition of power, of achievement right now. And I want to say there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Where it becomes wrong is what's happening in the motivations of the heart and the reason behind the pursuit of that. But there are some significant challenges to this. In fact, you walk out of this room tonight and everything, most, most voices in the cultural space is screaming at you, make yourself great, make yourself significant, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do it. You have the power within. And God is saying, actually, character is what's more important. You will become great someday. I will bestow power on you someday. Someday men and women will judge angels. That's a sobering thought. You were made to rule with power. But what I'm doing right now is creating in you a durable soul. So let's talk about some of the, some of the challenges that we face. Uh, the first is this, and Eugene Peterson says this so well, and I highly recommend his book, Along Obedience, in the same direction, which which largely inspired this class. He says this, I am quite sure that for a pastor in Western culture at the dawn of the 21st century, The aspect of world that makes the work of leading Christians in the way of faith most difficult is what Gore Vidal has analyzed as today's passion for the immediate and the casual. Everyone is in a hurry. The persons in whom I lead and worship, among whom I counsel, visit, pray, preach, and teach want shortcuts. They have adopted the lifestyle of a tourist and only want the high points. But a pastor is not a tour guide. The Christian life cannot mature under such conditions and in such ways. Uh, people largely want the quick fix, uh, the get-rich-quick scheme, um, the simplest and fastest way to greatness in any area of their life. And what he's saying here is is up. Oh, go back. What he's saying here is this: uh, God is calling us on a journey that is marked primarily by deserts and valleys and that being on a journey is a rugged endeavor now sometimes i think we can ascribe to christianity a kind of softness that was never meant to be there and the softness is very true in light of things like god's has said his tender kindness but the counterbalance to that is this is that god wants to give and make in making his saints a resilience a ruggedness, a toughness, a godly toughness if you will, because of just how difficult life is. In the resilience that happens what begins to take place is this is that Moses is able to have the fortitude by the grace of God, but that grace of God has imparted within him a character that can lead a nation as such. That it took 40 years. It's interesting and Chuck Swindoll points this out in his book on Moses. It took 40 years to prepare Moses to lead his people for 40 years. It took that long to develop in Moses the kind of character that was now then ready to lead. Moses was called the most humble man alive during his time on earth. The second challenge that we face, there is a great market for religious experience in our world, but there is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness that so often when we we don't feel like we love God we don't feel like loving other people we feel wrong inside like there's something wrong with us well I think often that wrongness within us is that God is developing that that faithful resilience within us he's toughening us up he's strengthening our legs for the journey anyone who's walked a journey like hiking the Grand Canyon hiking up Camelback Mountain will always tell you the first part of the journey is kind of exhilarating. And then you get into it for a while and it just, you know, it just starts to feel like I'm walking. Well, that's the point. And that's the point of our lives. God has asked us really to walk. It's really that simple. And however God is calling us to walk, that is the mandate. Uh, Next slide. I think. Okay. Um, So, before we segue into a break here is this, is that we are called on a journey, and the journey can have its peaks and its valleys. And a lot of the features that we've talked about in this class up until this point are in a sense kind of the peaks or the highlights, but this is reality, right? I mean, we all got up today, we either went to work or we went to school or we did something that throughout the course of our day, it, was, it just felt sort of ordinary, right? Maybe we, we paid our Southwest gas bill, we entered in, you know, the spreadsheet at work. We had that needed conversation with our boss. We had to discipline our kids because they were messing up again. You know, we had to fill, put gas in the tank. And it's just one detail after another. The beauty in that is God, because he, he lived in, an, in our incarnational space, space with us as Christ, understood that all of those little granular details, all of that, all of that is being used to make us into the people he's destined us to be, which is great if we will submit to that process, if we will look at seeing our life with a new set of eyes, we can see that, you know, every time I go to the grocery store is an opportunity for me to know God and other people more and to practice being a human being, to practice being loving. It's not just a mundane detail. It matters because someday we may be called to do something that Corey Ten Boom was called to do, that Moses was called to do, that Dwight T. Eisenhower was called to do. Let's take a break. <clears throat> All right, welcome back um, so we looked at we looked at the first the first feature deserts unapplauded, unappreciated unseen, unnoticed. just show of hands does anyone does anyone feel like they have a desert experience right now in some area of their life? I'm just kind of curious yeah um this next this next this next feature of the way is really uh is really the the grounding feature of the way, and it's walking in the valley. And in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, uh, Eugene Peterson quotes Frederick Nietzsche, of all people, and he says this, The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results, and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. And that's the scriptural pattern that we're called to is a faithfulness that says I'm in this for the long haul that the terrain may vary and change though it can often feel like 40 years in the same place that it's that faithfulness uh that really is our lodestar that guides us um, as we as we travel on and when we think about our lives being lived on a journey and that we're called to walk and and it's really as simple as that then it gives us the the it gives us the clarity of mind and heart to understand that you know, a lot of my life is going to be spent walking in these seemingly mundane details of life, and that is a glorious okay. That is a glorious okay. Um, We see this next element that in walking the valleys in this long obedience in the same direction that God is often calling us to wait, and we feel like when we hear that call to wait, that can seem very passive. We're Americans. We're on the go. We like to make things happen, but it's really a waiting forward. Gary Thomas says this, "We often don't think of waiting as a discipline, but it's all over scripture and well attested to the Christian classics. We are obsessed with where we are today and with what is going to happen in the next year, while God's plan for this world often take a long-term view. Abraham was a sprightly 75 years old when God promised him that he would be a great nation, a bold promise given" to a childless man. A quarter century passed before Isaac was born, and a full century went by before the promise about the land took concrete shape. Waiting for the believer is not futile and desperate act of those who have no other options, but rather a confident trust that eventually God will set things right, even if he is not operating within our preferred time frame. And this is true, right? We all, I believe, have God-given vocations and desires and callings, and some of us have seen, have seen that come to fruition to varying degree. Maybe for some of you, your desire is to have children. For others, it's to be married. Maybe you want something to happen professionally, uh, ministerially. Maybe there's something in regards to um, uh, purchasing a home or selling a home, and your timetable f- starts to feel frustrated Well, be in good company because this is a pattern that God is asking of us. We all have a life script, and we all struggle with what can happen in certain places with our life script, and God ultimately can be trusted because of the faithfulness that he's proven both in the Old and New Testament. Walking the valleys also means suffering forward, not just waiting for, but knowing that these, these momentary struggles ultimately are going to produce good results and that we can trust God with that. We know in looking at the role of desert seasons is that in the isolation, in the monotony, in the day in and the day out, that God is forging within, within us a durable soul. So we can see that and we can consider it all joy when we encounter those kinds of just monotonous details. And the same is true in the sufferings that we experience when we have to wait, because let's just face it, waiting can be really tough, right? When am I going to have children? When is that going to happen? Is that going to happen? When will I be married? Will I remarry again? Will I experience this, this dream and this burden that I have? And how much longer do I have to wait? And that's a real form of suffering. Um, and I think it's, it, it's right to consider it so and to, and to go before the Lord and walk that out with Him. We looked at, when we look at the role of Christ, our ultimate pilgrim, the ultimate traveler, the one who really is our guide, who sets the pace for each of our lives, how was he able to withstand his desert season? Because he had his own desert season. He spent 40, 40 days in the wilderness, and at the end of that, he went toe-to-toe with Satan, with the prince of the air, and how was he able to withstand the temptation for appetite, the temptation for applause, the temptation for a misuse of power. Well, we have to look at where he spent the majority of his time. You know, in her book, uh, anonymous, Alicia Britcoli uses the example of an iceberg, and how we, you know, when you see an iceberg, you're only seeing a small piece of that, but beneath the iceberg, much deeper is the source that holds up this formidable weight. Jesus submitted himself to the process of being a human being. He grew up as a boy. He learned to trade with his father. Uh, he learned the scriptures. He willingly submitted himself to the process. And you have to imagine, and this is this is an extra biblical pause right now, but you have to imagine what might have been going on as he grew in the knowledge of the Lord and he grew to know who he was uh, that he would be a Messiah. That he was the chosen one. That he was the Messiah. Could you imagine, as an 18-year-old, knowing that you have this kind of power and knowing that it wasn't your time yet? You'd have to wait. Could you imagine when the people taught, when when the people that you grew up with talked about your mother as being that well, that kind of loose woman that you know had had Yeshua and you know just don't want to say too much, but we kind of all knew what really happened. Could you imagine how he must have struggled perhaps during that time to maybe use his power? But he didn't. And even in the presence of Satan not calling the angels, not calling on all the power and authority of heaven, what was the key element to this? How was he able to do this? Well, it's really the answer to this question. So, what is true greatness? You know, we all thought about that uh, at the beginning of class, and, and this is really what the world seeks and strives after and, and, and wrestles for because greatness is tied to an understanding of authority and power. Jesus was endowed with all authority on heaven and earth, and yet he always, always, always used it in a way that honored God and was in the best interests of all of those around him. Jesus didn't lash out when he was being crucified, and he ultimately said to his father in Gethsemane, God, I don't want to do this, but your will be done. So, what is true greatness? Jesus' true strength was not revealed in his ability to teach and lead the multitudes. It was manifested in his willingness to make himself nothing, to suffer and to die. Uh, she talks about this, and this is really true. You know, it's it's in a sense it's easy for me to get up here and just, you know, say these really, really neat quotes and make Pixar references, and there's a sense of ease of this. And what she says is really true. I had enough strength to exhaust myself studying, mentoring, and teaching, but I did not possess sufficient strength to be nothing. So what is true greatness? True greatness is the submission of our will to God. That is greatness. That is greatness. That is what it means to be a great human being, is that, God, whatever happens, your will be done. God, I don't want this to happen, or I hope this doesn't play itself out, but, God, whatever it is, your will be done that is a great human being. That is a great soul. And we think about that as the metric for how we understand our lives and other people. That is where we become very revolutionary and very countercultural because the rest of the world defines greatness as this or that or this thing. And Jesus is saying, no, greatness is actually submission to the Father. That's a great human being. And if you're in a desert season where not a lot's happening, keep walking with God, keep submitting to him. Um, what happened to, what's the rest of the story with these other characters, and, and how does this kind of tie into our stories, our own stories this evening? Well, we know with Moses, as I said previously, that 40 years, day in and day out, and he, he sees something unusual, a, a bush that, that that didn't burn itself out, that was on fire, and you have to wonder and just take pause and think, you know, in being in that vacant space for that many years and being that humbled because the reality of it is is that we're going to be humbled greatly in these seasons. Some of you have had job losses, job setbacks. It's incredibly humbling. Some of us have had relational losses, relational setbacks. It's incredibly humbling. Some of us have not experienced the kind of dreams that we hoped to have had. That's incredibly tough and incredibly humbling. And Moses sees the burning bush and you have to wonder if in part he had been so humbled that he could take pause and see that thing happening. Uh, his soul had quieted. Your soul quiets in these moments because nobody thinks that you're the coolest thing on earth, maybe except a handful of people in your life, and maybe they don't even think that. Uh, you kind of start to see who you really are, and some of it is, is great, and some of it's not so great, and it becomes this, this real playing field between God's up here, and man, I'm really down here. Corey ten Boom. Well, Corey, for those of you that know, lived in occupied Amsterdam uh, during World War II, and the Nazis had taken occupation of her hometown, and she inadvertently became involved in helping to hide a number of um, Jewish, Jewish people, men and women, uh, in their home. And she writes so beautifully in her book, The Hiding Place, how this was a call that she felt that she had to respond to. These were God's chosen people, and it was an honor for her father, for their family, to participate and hide Jews while the Nazi, the darkness of the Nazi regime, descended upon Europe. Year after year, Corey, being faithful in what she was doing, never, probably not a lot during that time, thinking that anything this malevolent and dark and sinister would crouch and come upon and descend ultimately on her doorstep. But yet there she was, just being the faithful woman of God that he had called her to be. And then Corey inadvertently becomes the leader of the Dutch-resistant movement against the Nazis. An elderly spinster woman becomes the champion leader of... Uh, the, it, it just gives me goosebumps when I hear about this, that that, that God chose someone like Moses, that God chose someone like Cory ten Boom. What about Dwight D. Eisenhower? Well, he, like I said, felt like a complete failure. One seemingly random career event after the other. Um, Dwight D. Eisenhower, for those of you that know, presided over the interstate, the development of the interstate system. He had spent all that time in that really uncomfortable situation in that car going across the United States. Who better than to help guide and understand the development of the interstate system in our country? Well, What about in World War II? Well, um, his friend Patton at an early age had experienced a kind of success that must have made him struggle with envy. Uh, Remember that situation where he was the sort of glorified waiter? Well, If you're going to lead some of the most difficult, hardened, egotistical generals that the the world has ever known that are fighting on your side, you better understand how their personalities work. And what better way to do that than watch them at a poker game day in and day out? What about that jaunt where he had a, a role as being a tour guide? Well, who better to be the supreme allied commander than the person who knew France better than anybody in the United States because he had to lead tour groups around it? All of these seemingly mundane experiences that were, in his eyes at that moment, a complete failure, actually was training ground where he would have not only the character, but the experience. And you see, that's something else that I didn't touch upon, is that uh, it's, its character is foundational, but God is also giving us practical resources in these desert and valley experiences for moments that he may call us to say, you know what? Now is the time for you to be demonstrated in greatness. Uh, I'm going to bestow on you the power, the power of leading the allied forces to storm on the beaches of Normandy. That's hugely significant. Who else would you want to give that kind of power to than someone who'd been seasoned and tested and humbled greatly? What about shepherding a nation of people out of an enslaved hostile system into a hostile wilderness? Well, what about the person who's been shepherding stupid animals for 40 years and living in really excruciating heat. Who better a person than that? And who better a person than someone who's developed a tenderness and a faithfulness of heart to care for at that time and that day and age and that twisted culture, a group of people that were despised, someone who had become a caretaker in her own right, who is the perfect fit. You may look at some of the details of your life as disappointing, perhaps even humiliating, you may be frustrated with where you're at. You may feel like you're a failure in certain places and God has missed the boat. But I hope, my hope in prayer is that that is not the case. You are being made this day if you will allow yourself to be a great saint. God wants to make you great and that will happen as we follow him and pursue him along the way. What is greatness? Greatness is submission to God's will regardless of what happens. Let's pray. Father, this is a very, very tough and encouraging and difficult category to think in, God. We are just, we are just our, our cultural air is just polluted by so many things that are antithetical to your heart for greatness, God. I know personally I wrestle and struggle with this concept all the time. And I'm sure that's true for my for my brothers and sisters here, God. I pray that 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 tonight you would just give us maybe just a little bit more of an understanding um of this reality, God. And perhaps you may not reveal any of this to us at this season of our lives. And maybe even after we die, we only see a small portion of it. I have to wonder what Corey and, and Moses and Dwight D. Eisenhower thought of themselves even at the end of their days. I'm sure there were probably elements of their life that they still wasn't neatly wrapped up. Give us the grace, God, to just walk because that's what you've called us to. Um, I think that in the church sometimes we, we can have an inordinate, we place an inordinate value on living the exciting, revolutionary, I'm going to take the world for Jesus kind of life. And that can be good. That can also be idolatrous, God, when you've called us perhaps in some places of our lives to just be faithful like Corey did when she lived in repairing watches, as Dwight D. Eisenhower did when he just did what the army had had, had asked of him, being a tour guide, uh, like Moses being the shepherd, God, I pray that you would give us the grace to become resilient, to become strong. God, toughen us up, Lord, where we have um, immaturity uh, and weaknesses, Lord, that dishonor you. I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight. I pray that this reality sinks even deeper into our hearts, God.